Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. I am very excited to be back and, quite honestly, to be talking about something other than hashtag Operation Varsity Blues. Um, We did a whole segment on that in case you are interested in learning more about our take, but we're not going to talk about that today because it's supposedly spring here in New England, but it's still cold. I'm not really buying it. We don't really get spring, but summer is on the way. Uh, eventually, and we're going to discuss summer jobs and savings goals. But before we get to that, the other big thing is that decisions are in, and that means that many of you probably have some waitlist offers, and you're wondering uh, what that means for you. And so we're going to do two segments about the waitlist today. And the first one, which I'm really excited about, I'm always excited about all of our segments. You probably get sick of me saying that, but I am. Um, is we're going to be talking about what we saw in waitlists last season which I think might help you adjust expectations for this season. And joining me is my colleague, uh, who also happens to be a former Barnard and Bennington College admissions officer, uh, Elise Krantz. Hi, Elise. Hi there, Beth. So we're talking wait lists, and you are the perfect guest for this because you love statistics and digging into exactly what ended up happening, or at least I, my sense is that you enjoy that because you frequently are the person on our team who is, who's doing that. Um, and I guess my first question, so of course, just for our listeners' sake, we can't be talking about this year because we don't really know yet what's going to happen this year in terms of wait lists. But so we're talking about for our purposes today, 2018, uh, and so I guess overall, what were some trends that we saw in wait lists last year? It's interesting because wait lists are tricky. They, the numbers tend to change every year, whether a school is using wait lists, whether they're putting a lot of students on a wait list or a, a small number, and whether they're even taking students off of the wait list. But what What trend has stayed consistent over the past few years is that more and more colleges are offering students a spot on their wait list. Um, So there is a survey that gets issued every year that colleges can respond to. And the last round of this survey, 40% of the colleges who responded on average said that they use a wait list, and that number continues to go up every year. And it's interesting that... um, Private colleges use them a little bit more than publics, um, but in general, it's something that many, many colleges are turning to to help them manage their yield. Right, because, of course, one of the big challenges with admissions, not I want to say lately, but it's really been over the course of probably the past 10 to 15, maybe even 20 years, is just the rapid increase in the number of applications that students are submitting, and therefore the college is really being uncertain about how many students are going to accept their offers of admission, and therefore wanting to have a backup plan. And then the whole thing is kind of a little bit developing into a vicious cycle in that the students see, uh, you know, that the results are unpredictable, so they submit more applications, and the college's results are more unpredictable, so they have bigger wait lists, and 
It would be lovely if this whole trend could wind down and go in a different direction, but for right now, this is where we're at. Um, and it is so at the more selective colleges where the waitlists mm-hmm. are most concentrated. Um, right. According to that survey, it's 75% of the most selective colleges, which is defined by schools that accept fewer than 50% of their applicants. So more than 75% of those schools actually use a waitlist. And on average, I found this statistic quite interesting, schools put an average of 10% of their entire first-year application pool on a waitlist. Um, wow. So it's it's pretty large numbers of students we're talking about. Right, exactly. And just for those people listening in terms of, you know, I suppose there might be someone listening who's sort of new to the process and maybe doesn't have waitlist offers, but is curious about what this is all about. I mean, waitlist is just essentially what it sounds like. They put you on a list to wait to see if a, if a, if a position or an, uh, an opening comes available and then goes to that group of students to um, to select someone off the waitlist and then offer them an actual uh, place in the class. What is what did you see in terms of how many students are getting off of the waitlist and getting into the actual class? It really varies from college to college. On average, if we're looking nationally at all schools at different ranges of selectivity, uh, an average of 25% of waitlisted students will eventually get off of that waitlist and be admitted. But at the more selective colleges, understandably, that number shrinks down to 14%. But we, I have some interesting statistics that we can talk about from various schools that our listeners might be interested in to hear what happened last year because some admitted huge numbers of waitlisted students and some actually admitted zero despite having put lots and lots of students on the waitlist. Right. Right. And then are we seeing more and more students? I think that, you know, this is a trend. We're seeing more kids being put on the waitlist. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. The students are being offered a spot. And it's you mentioned before we talked about the yield component. It's hard for mm-hmm. colleges to gauge how many students will actually say yes after they've been admitted. But the other piece of the waitlist that colleges use it sometimes as a little bit of a pat on the back saying, we appreciate your application. We acknowledge that you're a good student. You're coming from a good school. We would love to admit you, but we just can't. And mm-hmm. so I think in sometimes colleges don't like having to deliver that bad news to a student that they do uh, want to give a little bit of recognition to. And so waitlist numbers are ballooning, I think, for that reason as well. I agree. I I have um, talked quite a bit about how I really do encourage, and we're going to talk some more about the statistics, and there may be places where the waitlist is more than simply a really nice way of saying no. But the more selective you get, Really, it's a nice way of saying no. And I actually, uh, I always find it kind of interesting when families get or students get the waitlist and or don't get waitlisted. And then I hear from the parents, Gee, it would have been nice just for a waitlist. That would have felt good. And I always think, why, though? It's just more of an opportunity to hang on and almost definitely you're not going to get in. Usually the schools we're talking about are admitting almost no students off of the wait list. I, I, so I guess there is something to that psychology that maybe it is nice to get a softer no, but 
that's probably a topic for I another think especially time. Especially when it's a, a super reach school, that's when I hear mm-hmm. that the most. So when a student has really reached, let's say, is looking at Harvard and they got waitlisted, sometimes they are thrilled because it makes them feel like I was almost a contender, I was almost in, and that right. can be really gratifying. But it's more when you are a very well qualified applicant and you got waitlisted at a school that was more of a target for you, or maybe even a safety. That's mm-hmm. when it can really sting because yeah. in those cases, colleges are managing their yield because they assume why will this student come if they are clearly qualified, overqualified in some cases? Let's not waste and admit on them. Let's just put them on the wait list, see if they're really interested in coming, and then maybe then we will uh, extend an offer. Right, exactly. And so there, those are some other ways in which colleges use the wait list. Um, and it all goes back to what you were saying, managing your yield, because if a college over-enrolls, in its applicant pool, that's a disaster. They have to, you read these articles every year where a college is setting up a temporary dorm space in, I don't know, a dining hall. That's probably an extreme example. Or as happened at my stepson's college, they were housing students in a hotel near campus Mm -hmm. because their dorms were full. It's also a disaster if you under-enroll your class then you're not putting heads in beds and you're not making your numbers, which you need to do to be a successful college. So it's tricky, no doubt. Um, well, why don't we, why don't, let's talk a little bit about, um, there are some colleges with very high waitlist numbers in 2018 and very few students get in. So what are some of those that you uncovered in your research? Um, so I don't, you know, I'm, in calling out these schools, it's not that this is their practice every year. I just want to remind mm-hmm. listeners that is not necessarily the case that the numbers will be similar this year. We, we can only really look at last year um, to to look at the to talk about potential trends or what students might be able to expect. Uh, but for example, so for some schools that had very high waitlist numbers and fewer getting in, Boston College. Um, mm-hmm. It offered about 6,000 or so students a spot on the wait list, and about 60% of them said yes, they wanted to see what would happen. But in the end, out of 6,000 students, only 16 were actually admitted off of that wait list. Yeah. I mean, the numbers are staggering when you really think about it from that perspective. Um you, what there's this next one that you found I found actually a little surprising. Um, I would have thought they might see more, but um, but what was another one that you were looking at? So the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Um, so a selective public research university, they offered about five thousand students a spot on their wait list. Uh, about. 2,000 or so said yes, they wanted to see what would happen, but only 1% of them were actually admitted in the end. It was 35 students out of the 5,000 that were given a spot initially on the wait list. Yeah, that's, I, you, you sometimes, you tend to think that maybe there might be more waitlist movement on the public school front, but this is a great example of a highly sought after public school that uh, both it's very popular in state and popular out of state and clearly they did not have challenges with their yield last year. Um, but I do, your point's a really good one, which is just because this is what happened at Boston College and UNC Chapel Hill last year doesn't mean that's what's going to happen this year. Uh, I will say, though, that it, it seems to me that you don't usually go from admitting 1% of your applicant pool or 1% of your wait list to admitting 
35% of your wait list. So I, I wonder if the numbers will change drastically or possibly just a little bit. Um, on, the, on the flip side of that, um, you also uncovered some certainly just as popular schools who have high wait list numbers, um, but many did get in or certainly more than we saw at Boston College and Chapel Hill. So what are, what are some of those trends that you saw? What are some schools that you, were notable there? So it's funny, we often talk about the University of Michigan, I feel like, on this show, because mm-hmm. their numbers, especially when it comes to early action numbers, that their decisions sometimes make us scratch our heads and wonder what's going on here. They, they Sometimes because of their popularity, I feel like it's difficult for them to really manage and understand who is interested in coming. And so waitlist activity is pretty big at Michigan. So last year, over 11,000 students were offered a spot on the wait list. About 4,000 or so said yes, they wanted to remain on that wait list. And a pretty generous 11% of those students were actually admitted. So it, it equated to about 500 waitlisted students were able to get off, which is, it's granted Michigan is a large school, but in total that's still a lot of happy campers out there who got good news. It is, and it also, what's interesting to me about that is that uh, they they clearly made a good call with a big chunk of the students they put on the wait list if their concern was how interested are these people in coming or we're not sure that we're going to get them, so we're going to wait list them. I'm not saying that Michigan is doing that. Um, my guess is their applicant pool is so huge that they, they probably don't do a lot of game playing there, but a big chunk of that the students offered a spot said, you know what, no thanks. So they at least had a much smaller group of students to choose from when they were ready to go to the wait list, which I think is interesting. Um, You also saw a private school um, who had a lot of movement, which also is kind of interesting. And this is a school that I certainly talked to lots of students about all the time. Syracuse University uh, in upstate New York had a pretty large wait list of 9,000 students last year were offered a spot on the wait list. And similar to Michigan, not a huge percent were saying yes. It's only about 30% that said, yes, I'd like to remain on it. Uh, but of those 30%, 46 were eventually admitted. It was over uh, 1,200 students in right. off of the wait list. So pretty, pretty big group there. Yeah, exactly. And my guess is that Syracuse very much here was looking for, we've admitted a nice group of students, we are not quite sure about this group. And in in the end, they were right, because only 30% said yes. And then they were able to take almost half. That's, that's awesome. So um, we don't know how that's going to turn out this year. And it may be that you get waitlisted at Syracuse this year. And it's smaller numbers by far, but at least you know what happened last year. And here, of course, is the really bad news, which is that the colleges who maybe waitlisted students in 2018 and then didn't accept any students. And I found a few of these really surprising, actually. So what are some of the schools that you discovered um, that this was the case? Right. So the waitlist statistics, I should quickly point out are not available publicly for all colleges. Um, So for the ones that I was able to find some of these statistics, many of them, as you would imagine, are highly sought after, highly selective colleges where it's easy for these schools to fill their classes. They don't need to go to a wait list. So, for example, Caltech, Dartmouth, Williams, and Tufts are all very, very highly selective schools, and they had wait lists, and zero of their students got in off of the wait list. But... 
there are some other colleges that are a little bit less selective and they still didn't need their wait list. They, perhaps they over-enrolled or they hit their target right on. But last year, Tulane University in New Orleans and Virginia Tech. Um, they had significant numbers of students on the wait list and they didn't accept any of them. Yeah, I, I think that's, I find that really interesting, especially Virginia Tech. It's a big state school. You would think that they would, if they have a wait list, that they would go to it, but that they didn't take anyone is really almost blowing my mind. And then Tulane, I'm wondering if what we're seeing here is their rise in early programs, early decision, early action, early decision two has helped them to better manage their yield so that they're not having to go to their wait list, but are admitting everyone really off the bat in those programs. I'm wondering if that's impacting it. Um, I'm curious, any thoughts on that or... Yeah, I was thinking the same thing because I think it was this year, wasn't it, that Tulane opened up their ED2 policy? So um, a lot of students are, a lot of colleges, excuse me, are using their early rounds to fill in a large bulk of the class, which does make it more manageable for them in that regular decision round. I agree. Yep. Uh, so any any insight into our listeners who are saying, yeah, this is all well and good. Um, you didn't mention any of the schools that I'm waitlisted at. <laughs> and how about how can I find out more about this? Any any um, recommendations on where they can go to learn more? Sure. So if you're looking for last year's waitlist statistics, the easiest place you can go is to the big future website on College Board. Uh, the web address is Big Future dot college board dot org and when you look up the name of a particular school you're going to click on the applying tab and up at the top of the page if the school reports their waitlist stats and not all do but if they mm-hmm. if they're being transparent uh, you'll see the waitlist uh, numbers right there on the screen All right. Awesome. Well, later in the show, we're going to talk a little bit uh, about what to do if you're on the wait list, how to think through this part. Now that we have the the background and the statistics, uh, I think that will be uh, a great background to that later conversation. Elise, thanks so much for joining us and, and sharing all this information today. Always a pleasure. Thanks. All right. When we come back, we're going to be talking about summer jobs and summer saving goals. So don't go away. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Have you found the beauty inside of you? 
Join Bonnie Bonadeo each week for Beauty Inside and Out. We'll explain how beauty plays a part in everybody's lives. Our guests are makeup artists, hairdressers, and doctors. But we'll also feature holistic and wellness specialists and spiritual advisors. You can find that beauty inside and express it to its fullest on the outside. Tune in to Beauty Inside and Out every Thursday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is on Instagram. Make sure you follow us and comment on our pictures from behind the scenes at our radio shows, live events, and around the network. We want to see what you have to share as well. Check us out on Instagram at Voice America Talk Radio. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, We are talking about summer, and I am hopeful that talking about summer is going to bring summer. So this is my version of a rain dance. It's a summer dance. Um, And I'm excited to welcome Lori Peltier, uh, former financial aid office officer, excuse me, at Becker and Anna Maria Colleges to the show. Lori, like me, is stuck here in New England with our spring, which I'm doing in air quotes, which is not really spring. It's just more winter. Hi, Lori. Hi, Beth. How are you? I'm good, thanks. And I'm sure I bore our listeners with all my talk about the weather, but um, this is the time of the year where I really do question my choices of why I live here, because we really don't get a spring and I'm sick of the cold. But yeah. We're talking summer, so maybe that will all bring the sun. Uh, so I, I think one of the things that is, and what's interesting to me about this is, to me, this is almost a joint, where, where this is our finance segment today, and our focus is on the finance elements of it. But I I want to preface this conversation, which is about summer jobs and summer savings goals, with the fact that Colleges love to see students doing working at jobs in the summer. So before you um, get too um, upset thinking about it's such a not a great thing that my son or daughter has to work this summer because I would love if they were doing something more exciting and interesting. I will tell you that as an admissions officer and my colleagues share this, when I saw a summer job on an application, I thought that's great because quite honestly, not so many, not as many kids do work in the summers anymore. They're busy doing other things. Sometimes they're taking classes. Sometimes they're doing internships. Um, but I worked a summer job. I worked the grill at Friendly's. And man, that job was great in many different ways. And one of the ways it was really great is, A, I earned money that I could save to go to college. But also, it was great because it reminded me of why I really wanted to go to college so that I didn't have to work the grill at Friendly's. As my as my full time job, so um, I guess first question that I have for you is really, what what do you see as the types of jobs out there and available to teenagers during the summer? 
There are lots of jobs out there for, for students, teenagers to work at in the summer. Um, and you might have to call in some favors and kind of think outside the box. But thinking about summer jobs brings me back to when I was a parent looking this time of year for summer camps for my little kids. You know, if you have a five, six, or seven-year-old, you're spending all of February, March, and April trying to figure out where am I going to put them in camp for the summer so I can go to work. Um, and now it's shifted, and now you're thinking, where am I going to get my teenager a job? Think about those same summer camps. So summer camps are a great place. Um, a lot of the jobs in the summer for teenagers are working outdoors or working with children or, like you said, working at a, you know, a restaurant, a concession stand, um, maybe helping other families, like babysitting, um, cleaning their pools, walking their pets, running errands, maybe even tutoring or, again, outside working at a golf course as a caddy or maybe landscaping or in the sports venue, you know, maybe being an umpire or a referee for soccer or, you know, working at a sporting camp. Um, So there's a lot of jobs out there. A lot of them are outdoors. A lot of them are with little children. My kids um, did work at Boy Scout camp. My son and my daughter worked at Boy Scout camp, which was fabulous because they got to ride together, and I could ship them off in the morning at the same time, Um, Mm -hmm. and um, you wouldn't think that a girl could get a job at the Boy Scout camp, but she ran the arts and crafts for the Cub Scouts. So um, so there's lots of different jobs, and you may have to, you know, look at your connections. Do you know anyone who, you know, might work for an agency that has an arts and crafts camp? Or, you know, so you might have to pull in some favors, but you definitely want to start this time of year and start looking at what the opportunities are. Right. And and actually, um, we're talking about as parents, right? But also, I think this is really uh, um, a student's job search. So you may be able to help them. But what's some advice mm-hmm. that you have in terms of putting them out there on the path to finding the job that makes sense for them? Um, and any advice you would have on that front? Well, I think just like you mentioned from an admissions perspective, it, it's a great way for a student to build self-confidence, to you know put themselves out there, meeting people, getting their interview skills, putting together a resume, um, you know, trying to dress appropriately for the interview. Uh, all of those skills are great to have, and it takes some honing to polish those skills. So, um, you know, the more they do, the more comfortable they'll be. Um, I guess. Um, you know, again, talking to a lot of people and looking at job boards, looking on you know, Craigslist or Facebook or whatever avenue you're going to use to try to uncover some of these opportunities. And also think about when you're in the previous summers, where did you see other teenagers working? Well, all of those yeah. teenagers, you know, get out of high school, go to college, they might move away. Those jobs, you know, open up every summer. Right, exactly. We live very close to a very popular ice cream stand, and it is packed every day of the summer, and it is almost as packed inside with teenagers who are scooping ice cream. And I often think when I go there, this probably would be fun for my son when he is old enough to have a summer job. Um, So they work hard. They need muscles when when they work there. Yes. You know, it it is true. You know, back in the day when I would look for a summer job, I would literally just go out and I would have the information I needed for the job application, you know, a couple names of references and telephone numbers. 
and written down and I would just go into different businesses and ask if they were hiring. Uh, and it almost feels, you know, here I am, like I used to walk uphill both ways, barefoot in the <laughs> snow, but it seems almost a little easier watching my stepson go through the the uh, job search process when he was still in high school. Um, a lot of the things that you fill out, you can just go and do it online. But I also do think sometimes it can be worthwhile just to stop in uh, to those places that you mentioned where you've seen lots of teenagers working and just inquiring, hey, are you hiring for the summer? What is your timeline? And uh, can I fill out an application here? Do I need to do it online? There's usually someone there who can tell you a little bit about how that would work. Um, and right. I'm speaking to all the teenagers who are listening right now. They're, they're there to help you and parents, the, you know, push them to go off and do it. What's your, what was your experience in terms of most of these jobs paying by the hour? Do you, have you seen other options? I'm curious what you think about that. So most of them are by the hour. However, the ones that are a commitment for the summer, like summer camp, for example, I mentioned the Boy Scout camp, it was a set amount for the summer, and it started, you know, the week before the 4th of July, and it ended the week before Labor Day, and they would get, I don't know, let's say $800, and it would be broken up, and they would get a paycheck at the end of every month. So it took a little bit of budgeting and preparing to know that you're not going to get cash in hand every week. Uh, so it was a lesson in, in financial planning. Um, some of them are just tips, you know, like maybe a caddy or something. You might get a small hourly wage, but you make a lot in tips, uh, same as a waitress. Um, but uh, I would say most of them are hourly, but you definitely want to understand the situation before you get into it. So, you know, yes. ask the right questions. How will I get paid? When will I get paid? What is the hourly rate? Um, you know, how much am I going to earn by the end of the summer? So, so doing some financial planning of, okay, if, if I do this job 20 hours a week or 40 hours a week, I should earn this amount of money. And how much, you know, what kind of goal do I have for the summer? How much do I need to earn to save up enough for my first year of college or that laptop or that ski pass for the mountains this summer, this winter or something like that. Right. And actually, let's talk about that. I, I can say that when I um, when we signed the deposited at the school that I ended up attending, it was not a small thing. We had a financial aid package to look through and my parents were looking at the expected family contribution for them. And I do remember them saying to me, we can do this. However, one thing that we are going to need from you is you're going to need to earn $2,000 every summer. So at the end mm -hmm. of every summer, you're going to need to give us $2,000. So I always had to figure out um, how how was I going to earn that money? Was the um, was the job I was had at that point going to pay me enough? Was I going to have to supplement? And in fact, I did. I remember one summer, I got a job that I was more excited about. It was in an office rather than working the grill at Friendly's. And quickly, I realized that I was no going to get nowhere near earning the two thousand dollars. And so I ended up having to get a second job waiting tables mm -hmm. um, to mm -hmm. get me there. What do you, um, as, as a parent, how do you think about, and, and as a parent and as a finance, college finance professional, what are your, uh, what's your advice around setting savings goals for students, whether they're setting them for themselves or the parents are helping them to set them? Right. Um, well, number one, um, being realistic, um, you know, most teenagers really hate delaying gratification. 
So, you know, if they have money in their pocket and they have a chance to go with their friends to the movies and out to eat, that's what they want to do with the money and not put it in the bank and not look at it for another couple months. But I think the $2,000 that you mentioned is, is pretty accurate for what most colleges think a student needs for those incidentals, books, supplies, you know, you're going to need notebooks and pens and, and things like that when you're at college. And having the conversation with the kids about what is your spending allowance while you're at college and are we going to fund that? The worst thing I've seen is, you know, parents and, and students coming to a financial aid office in, say, August asking if they can borrow a loan to buy their books. Mm-hmm. And I always say, well, what happened to your summer earnings? Oh, I didn't work this summer. Well, that's, you know, you're eight, a healthy 18-year-old. Why didn't you work this summer? You yes. could have earned enough to buy your books. So I think um, my advice would be, you know, from my own experience and from the financial aid office that, you know, there are so many other expenses besides tuition and fees, which may or, not be, may or may not be covered with financial aid, that are out of pocket and come at all different times. You know, maybe in mm-hmm. October your laptop dies and you're going to need a new one or you need a printer or you need, you know, to get off campus to do an internship or something. So, so there are expenses that come along the way in college that students should have money in the bank to pay for, um, including their books and their spending, you know, and their, their entertainment and things like that. So, um, and then if there are extra things, like if you need a new car to get to college or if you need a new laptop or, you know, there's a goal you want to go on spring break, well, maybe your summer earnings could help supplement that. Right. I, I That example you give is such a good one. You know, to be borrowing money to pay for your books because you didn't work over the summer that I mean obviously some people need to borrow money to pay for the books because the student did work over the summer but all of that money is going to pay for college but in that scenario and I do see it um, and sometimes I see it in the students sort of really just wanting to take a break they worked so hard in high school and the parents wanting them to have that break but Mm -hmm. you know I think that's how kids wind up back in your basement so unless that's really how you want that to go I think the break is over. The exciting thing is, hey, you're doing work, but they're giving you money for it. So, you know, at least it's not just more activities or clubs that you're joining in school in order to, you know, explore your interests. That is also going to look good on your college application. This is also you're doing something that will, A, look good on your college applications if you haven't applied yet, but B, earn you cash in your pocket and you can start to pay your own way. And as we tell our kids all the time, there's such a sense of accomplishment when you are paying your own way. And here's a little taste of it. And um, the goal with college is then to launch yourself into the world as an educated person who is ready to start working and paying your own way all the time. That's my philosophy. I get it that not everybody agrees with that, but... That's where we're at. So any any other, anything else, tips, advice, or thoughts on this before we, um, we go to break? Just one last thing um, regarding the type of job. You know, if a student is very much interested in working in healthcare, you know, or going to college for, for a healthcare-related job, 
maybe you'd want to work in a nursing home or, you know, try to get a job at a hospital. There are jobs for teenagers. You know, maybe it's just delivering meals, but um, you'd get a feel for what it was like to work in a hospital or in a healthcare setting. So there are jobs that a student can get over the summer that might help them with their career choices and try to rule out what they like and what they don't like or shadow um, someone in their field, you know, maybe working as a, you know, in the summer in a law firm, answering the phones or something for the regular receptionist who's taking a vacation for the summer. So mm-hmm. you get a feel for the law firm if you plan on going to law school someday. So, so I think there are ways to find jobs that tie into what you want to major in college. Yes, exactly. You don't always have to work in a camp or wait tables or things like that. Um, There are other opportunities. Lori, thanks so much for being here today. I think you shared some really great information and tips, and and I really appreciate it. Thank you, Beth. Have a good day. All right. We're going to take a short break, and then we're coming back to talk some more about wait lists. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. What's your coffee story? The one that defines who you truly are in a relaxing setting. It's where you share your memories, plan for the future, and talk about the now. My favorite coffee story is here with host Aniko Samoji. We invite you to listen in and share your coffee stories too. Bring your friends or just stop by as we talk about coffee and the inspiring stories that touch our lives every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at blog.voiceamerica.com. That's blog.voiceamerica.com. The Voice America Press Blog. All access, all the time. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. 
To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. All right. In our first segment of today's show, we talked about the waitlist trends that we saw last year and shared some statistics. Uh, of course, we don't really know yet what the waitlist trends are going to be this year because the waitlist season is upon us and is just now beginning. Um, but what we can tell you a little bit about is what you can do now. And um, I'm excited to welcome my colleague and former Barnard admissions officer, Kara Courtois, to the show to talk about that. Hi, Kara. Hi, how are you doing, Beth? I'm good. So earlier in the show, Elise joined us and we talked about a lot of the trends that we saw last year with colleges with bigger and bigger wait lists and in some cases not going to the wait list at all or taking very, very few students off of the wait list. And so what I was hoping we could talk about today is a little bit more insight into, great, I, I hear about the trends and everything, but what about me and what do I do this year? Trends are not particularly helpful. So I think my first question uh, that I'll throw out to you is really around the very first question that students need to answer, right? And that is whether or not you want to remain on the wait list. And we did hear in, in Elise's segment that in most cases, they would put the wait list out to a certain number of students, but only um, a percentage of those students would opt to remain on the wait list. So what are your thoughts on that piece? Yeah, I mean, I always encourage students to be very thoughtful before, you know, just having a knee-jerk reaction in either direction, you know, either that they're hurt that they didn't get admitted and, you know, just feel like a wait list is hopeless or, you know, just really sort of acting out of emotion rather than taking a step back. On the flip side, you know, not to automatically accept a wait list if they have absolutely no intention of ever going to that school because there are certainly some colleges that when they think back to early on in the process of why that school was added to the list, it might have been, you know, a, a school that they, they needed to grow their list a little bit and it sort of fit a few of the criteria, but they didn't really have high hopes either direction, you know, overall. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I always encourage students to, to step back for a second before they respond too quickly um, to either accept the wait list or or not, and to give some thought to that, um, you know, overall. And then there's further steps. I don't know if you want to go deeper. (laughs) Yeah, no, I mean, we can in in a second, but I want to highlight one element of this, which is, um, you know, we all have, and I think most recently with, and I said I wasn't talking about the scandal today, and I'm not really talking about it, but if we're thinking about the craziness in the college admissions world, one of the things that can make things more crazy is trophy hunting, right, is, well, I want to see where I can get in. And I do think sometimes um, students remain on the wait list. I I wouldn't say that this is the most common thing, but you sometimes Mm -hmm. students do to see if they can get in. But if you have no intention of going there, please don't do that. What does it matter? You're not going. So let it go. You got waitlisted. You could just tell people you turn them down, which is true, by the way. You know, like, I turned down a spot on the waitlist. So... Yeah. Um, and I do, I yeah. do often phrase that in the sense that, you know, you might be helping one of your classmates, you know, mm-hmm. really by stepping away. And that's an important thing to consider, 
you know, yes. that you know there's quite a few students from your school that were also waitlisted there, taking yourself out of that just gives a little bit more wiggle room potentially for that college to consider your classmate. Exactly. And it may make no impact at all, but it could. And um, I just, you know, the more we can all be more ethical in our approach and more thoughtful of others in our approaches to this process, really the better for everybody. Uh, One thing I did want to talk a little bit about is um, understanding the college's policies. I think, as with everything in this world, some colleges are going to be really specific about what it means to be on the waitlist and how it works. And if you want to Google um, UVA's waitlist letter, my guess is it will pop up. But um, I saw it and they were so specific. They explained that the waitlist was in, I believe, 10 different categories. And um, they laid out as much information as they could about how they anticipated their waitlist process working. Whereas other schools will just say, hey, we're thrilled to offer you a spot on the waitlist and let us know if you want to remain on it. And that's about it. Um, any, you know, any other thoughts on this element of it as you have done this work um, for many years and, and what you've seen and maybe what you did um, when you were at Barnard? Yeah, I mean, that, that's a great question because I do think it's a, it's, a, it's a good skill for students to also learn in that, you know, um, if they want to, especially if they want to remain on the wait list, you know, does, what does that mean? And is there anything that they can, you know, do for themselves? And, you know, we know that the basic recommendations, but connecting with the admissions department in a thoughtful way by crafting specific questions that a student might have, you know, such as, you know, what are the best ways at your institution that you're speaking to to be able to advocate for myself um, further? connecting with the admissions department, whether it's someone who's an area representative like we had at Barnard, mm-hmm. um, could be a helpful conversation, whether it's on the phone or by email, you know, it doesn't matter. Um, preferably not going in person to mm-hmm. plead <laughs> um, a case. But, you know, like you said, that there there are differences in the way um, a college will explain the waitlist, and, and probably UVA's letter has evolved over time in trying to avert, you know, or trying to answer the n- numerous questions that probably came, you know, at them right away when they sent a more, you know, benign or, you know, basic uh, mm-hmm. waitlist letter. And that other colleges might still stick with a basic letter in hopes that a student would reach out and try to dig a little bit deeper um, into, you know, better understanding how they might advocate for themselves. So, you know, I always encourage students that, again, if it's a, it's a, if it's a school that they really, truly want, that they've been, you know, waitlisted at, trying to understand how best to improve their opportunities is a genuine question. That they mm-hmm. might have, they might have a productive que- uh, conversation with someone at admissions. If nothing else, they might walk away with confirmation of what they're already doing. You know, if they're doing one thing that we often recommend, you know, in, at, in our company, but also when I was in admissions at Barnard, is follow up with a letter restating your intention and mm-hmm. more about why and specifics. Sometimes it's almost restating what a supplemental question you know, might have highlighted originally, but you're coming at it in a different direction. Um, So much has to do with also 
you might get reconfirmation. Yeah, I definitely want to stay on that wait list. I loved, you know, what they said about the school, and I, I want to send the message that the school means a lot to me, if for no other reason that maybe I'll be applying it as a transfer student down the road, and it's a good way to bring closure to something. Yes, I, and and I would I would add um, that one big thing to do is follow what's in the letter. So if the letter clearly states, please do not register for accepted students day. Please do not come to mm-hmm. campus to plead your case. Please do not register for accepted student day. Please do not come to campus. You are <laughs> when you do that. What you're saying is, I know you said not to do this, but I'm going to do it anyway. And that. Or, uh, I can't think of a time that ever went over well. Um, I yeah. once had, if you know, we share kind of horror stories every once in a while, but I once had a mother contact me a number of times about her daughter coming off of the wait list and by phone. So I had probably three conversations with the mother, which was quite honestly, three conversations too many. I should have been talking to the daughter. And then Mm -hmm. she showed up on campus and lied and said she was a friend Mm -hmm. of mine to get me to come out and talk to her. Um, There's none of that was a good idea. And Mm -hmm. I will say that in that situation, her daughter, we didn't take that many people off the wait list when I was at Penn. And she was not going to come off the wait list. But by her mother's actions, it sort of became a, she's definitely not coming off the wait list. I yeah. will go to every other person in my region on the wait yeah. list other than this yeah. student. Um, and and yeah. our policy at Penn was that the wait list was not ranked. Um, and really, you truly did have no idea who was going to come off of the wait list because you didn't know where your holes were going to be. And what would happen is the dean might say, okay, well, we need another engineer from this part of the country, and then you would go and look, if you had that part of the country, for another engineer. Or Mm -hmm. you did sometimes have students who were in the class up until the very last minute, but then you were shaping the class and you had too many that fit their profile and they got pulled out. But I would often leave those files on my desk so that if I got a call for the wait list, I would go, hey, could we, we need to take this kid because this kid was yep. in and we had to pull her out yep. and now I want to pull her back in, right? I'm sure you had yep. that experience 100%. as well. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly true. And I love that example that you gave because it's, you know, it, it's, it's an absolutely important example, I think, for parents, especially, you know, to, to know that this is definitely one of those experiences where you might actually you know, move your student off the wait list to really a deny mentally in the minds of admissions um, just by virtue of trying to, um, you know, stronghold <laughs> the right. admissions department. It's it's really a time to just step back and, um, you know, as it probably was talked about on previous callers, is encourage your child to, to be present where they've been admitted and really put two feet in to a school where they've been admitted and really try and sink their teeth into that idea while maybe sending out some um, positive energy through, you know, by means of a letter and trying to figure out how they might still improve chances of a wait list without putting a ton of energy uh, or mental energy into, you know, wondering if that's actually going to work out, you know, really right. put their minds where they've been admitted. And, and I think really good point because at, especially the more selective you get. Certainly there are some schools where you might say, I'm going to stay on the wait list. And I've seen it happen where then the student is, they call them and say, you're really interested. And they say, yes. And they go, great, you're in the class. 
That is not typically what happens. Um, typically, mm-hmm. you're waiting there, checking out what their yield is looking like. And maybe the earliest you might um, hear about a waitlist school would be maybe mid-April. But usually, waitlist activity, in my experience, does not happen until after May 1, which is the common reply date. Mm-hmm. So you need to deposit at another school. You need to choose from the options that are available to you. And you need to get excited about that school because that's almost definitely where you're going to be going next year. Especially if you heard those stats from the first segment we did today, you know that the chances are that you are not getting off of the wait list. So you want to embrace the school options that you have. Um, Any other advice on that front? I honestly could not agree more. And what I've seen in my experience, uh, both in admissions and since I've been out of admissions, is that even when a student does occasionally get that call to get off the wait list, that, you know, anecdotally, I'd say nine times out of ten that they've actually will turn it down because Mm -hmm. they've actually really been committed to the school and they've gotten excited and they bought the sweatshirt and they maybe even almost have a roommate you know, yep. set up online. So they're really, you know, committed to that place. And I think that's normal and healthy and great. Surprising, I would say, to most families when they think, I can't believe they actually turned it down when they got in, you know, off the wait list. And right. I, I've seen it so often that I'm never surprised by that. And an interesting wrinkle here is that one of the things that we did at Penn and that I do believe they, they do at um, at some schools especially, and uh, we hate to focus always on the most selective, but at the most selective levels, we called. So I would place a call yeah. to the student to see if they were inter- still interested um, in coming off of the wait list. And we would want to, I would want to hear back from that student within basically within the day, maybe 24 yeah. hours. And if they weren't ready to commit or they were kind of ambivalent, they weren't sure, then we moved on to the next student on the wait list. Our goal was to get a one-to-one. We take you off the wait list, you come. Uh, so mm-hmm. I also think as you are going through May and June, and and certainly at a lot of schools, they will release everyone from the wait list by a certain date and say, I think we're good. But um, they might contact you. So you want to know, am I really interested still? Is this really still the place I want to go? If they call me, can I say, absolutely, I'm ready? Um, Understanding that there may be less financial aid attached. There may be not much financial aid attached, depending on the school. Um, As a family, I think those are important conversations to keep having and keep checking in about it. Because if you get the call and you do want to come off the wait list, you want to be able to pretty definitively say, yep, um, send, send the offer along and I'm excited and we're going to take a look at it, but almost definitely we're going to accept it um, versus, well, I'm not really sure. If you hem and haw too much, they may move on to the next name on the list. So, mm-hmm. um, yep. yeah. And I, the only thing I would add to that would be, you know, for a student that was waitlisted to let your guidance counselor know, mm-hmm. you know, if the school where you've been waitlisted is still your top choice, that you are still depositing somewhere else, you know, as we'd already discussed. But to let the guidance counselor know, you know, that this is my first choice, if, if there's any way, you know, that an option is available, we really, my family and I really want to be considered for that, um, just in case, you know, the, the guidance counselor can advocate or gets a call from admissions, yes. you know, just to clarify. Great point. Kara, thanks so much for being here today. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Beth. 
All right. Well, I also want to thank all my other guests today, Lori and Elise, for their great info. Um, Next week, Sally is here, and we are going to tackle the big scary thing that hopefully isn't happened to anyone who's listening. But what if you got no offers? What if basically you got denials and wait lists and, you know, what are, what are your options? Can you even go to college next year? And the good news on that is yes. Um, and we're going to be talking about how to handle that if you don't get any offers. Uh, we'll give you some tools and advice for creating a financially smart college list. And we're also going to be talking about third culture kids. So some of those students who maybe have grown up in one country but are technically citizens of another and... Um, this kind of interesting area that some of those students live in. If you have questions, send them to us, gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. We have great archives. You can search those using a hashtag. They're pretty extensive at this point, so you probably should do that. Um, And follow us on Facebook, too. We we post lots of great information there. And don't forget, we're here every Thursday, 4 p.m. Eastern and 1 p.m. Pacific. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. We'll be right back.